Before we get started, my producer Steph is here. Hey, Steph. Hey, Josh. Now, I know that you, like me, are a lover of movies and television, but sometimes the thing that we really want to watch for some reason isn't available on our streaming services here in Australia. And we often don't really know what we're missing out on, which is where NordVPN comes in. NordVPN can whisk you away to any country and get you instant access to all the shows and movies that they have on their streaming services. So if you're a fan of UK comedy, you can log in in England. Maybe you like Japanese cinema, head to Tokyo, log in there. It's all really easy with NordVPN. I've been using it for the last month and it really just feels like I've got a bunch of brand new streaming services. The other amazing thing that NordVPN does is a virtual location function, which allows me to get the best deals that are available only in other countries. I can book flights, I can book hotels, or even subscribe to streaming services using a virtual location that ensures that I'm literally getting the best deal available anywhere in the world. And NordVPN does all of this with maximum privacy protections. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. And so privacy is now just something that I do not have to think about anymore, which is amazing. Listeners, we want you to give this a try. So we've partnered with NordVPN to give you an exclusive deal. Head to nordvpn.com slash conversations to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan, plus four additional months for free. It's all completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't like it, just tell them and they'll refund your money. It's really as simple as that. If you want better streaming services for cheaper, if you want better deals, and if you value your privacy, NordVPN is for you. Get our exclusive offer by going to nordvpn.com slash conversations. That's nordvpn.com slash conversations. Check it out. G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. What is going on in our culture and society and politics at the moment? Is cancel culture a thing? Is wokeness a thing anymore? Or are these just punchlines that the the right and the people who are grumpy use uh, to denigrate cultural and social progress? I've been a bit confused lately because it's a little bit difficult to get your arms around what's right and what's wrong and what's true and what's not and make sure that you're not falling into the trap of just looking at cherry-picked outrages in tabloid in tabloids and on social media and having your view of what's really going on in the world somewhat warped. Enter Yasha Monk, who has been on the show before, uh, talking about one of his previous books. He has a new book that I absolutely loved I would go so far as to say it's sort of one of the definitive texts about what's going on in the battle between small-l liberalism and identitarianism on the left and, as a result, also on the right and for all of us. He's an expert on liberal democracy. He's an expert on the rise of populism. He's an academic. He's a professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University. He's a contributing editor at The Atlantic. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He has his bona fides, in other words. He also has a podcast called The Good Fight. And quite apart from the fact that he's a genius who speaks English and German and French and Italian and English uh, and is irritatingly well-read and erudite, um, he has turned his attention now to what he calls the identity trap or the identity synthesis in some ways. Uh, his book is called The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. 
Uh, it's like drinking from a cool fountain, hearing someone uh, make very lucid criticisms of the moment that we're in without resorting to ad hominem, without resorting to hysteria, whilst giving uh, uh, all due credit and, uh, and credibility to the good ideas of, uh, of the other side that he disagrees with. I hope you enjoy as much as I did. Yasha Monk. So good to talk to you because I, I find your book is like very much needed at the moment in so many of the conversations about wokeness and cancel culture and the identity wars. We're talking about ineffable, undefined phenomena to such an extent that I'm not quite sure whether or not we're actually talking about anything real or whether we're just jumping at shadows. Um, and your book starts with a handful of actual anecdotes to pinpoint specifically what you're talking about. One of them is the mother of a child who's in school uh, who wants to request a particular teacher for her daughter's class. Is that right? Can you tell us what happened? Yeah. And first of all, you know, I love being back on the show and thank you for for, for framing the conversation that way because, you know, I am concerned about some of the things that have happened on the left, some of the ways in which um, we've become obsessed with a particular kind of set of conceptions of identity and what supposedly follows from it. But, you know, a lot of the critiques of that space are, I think, as unhelpful as they are helpful. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do in this new book is to actually shed light, to help people understand what is this tradition? What is it, where does it come from? What is it trying to do? Um, I end up being quite critical of it, but I think even people who are sympathetic to it have a lot to learn from from that, hopefully, about what it actually is. So my starting point is the story I was really shocked to come across, uh, which is a woman called Kyla Posey, who's herself black, um, who lives in the suburbs of Atlanta. And she's invited by the principal of her school to suggest a particular teacher because she does some stuff at the school that's kind of a standard operating procedure there. Um, and at first, the principal says, yeah, of course, no worries, send me the teacher's name, no problem. But when Posey emails in her request, the principal keeps sort of deflecting in strange ways and saying, perhaps this other teacher would be a, a better fit. And eventually, Posey uh, demanded to know why her daughter couldn't have the first choice. Uh, and the principal told her, well, you know, the class is suggesting that's not the black class. Um, now, that sounds like a sort of depressingly familiar story of racial discrimination and segregation, uh, which has, of course, existed in, in the history of the American South for a very long time. But here's the strange twist. The principal was herself black. And what she was motivated by was not the sort of old prejudices of, you know, white parents who don't want their kids mixing with black kids or anything like that. It was a new progressive ideology. I call it progressive separatism in education. They were saying, uh, you know, it's really important to, for black kids to have a peer group of other black kids. And so if there's not enough black students in a class, that's really a problem. And so, you know, Kyla Posey couldn't have a favorite teacher for her kids because according to this very progressive black principle, uh, you know, we need to put the black kids into the same class so that they're among each other in order to build the right kind of positive racial identity. And does that mean that the teacher that had been suggested wasn't black and the principal was saying you need to have a black teacher? I think it was in part about the teacher being black, but it was a lot about making sure that the black kids are all uh, 
in, in school with each I other. See, and, I see, I you know, yeah. One of the powerful things that, that, that Carla Posey told me when I interviewed her about it is, you know, she, 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 she was telling me about watching the inauguration of Kamala Harris um, as Vice President of the United States with, with her kids and saying, you know, my children, they're going to have all the opportunity in the world and I want them to be comfortable in any room. And she felt that the principal was telling her, your kids have to have black friends. That's what they need in order to be socialized in the right way. And she was saying, of course, I want them to have black friends. I want them to have friends from every other racial group as well. And they're going to go and do great things. And they're going to have to be comfortable in every room. And so the idea that it would be to the benefit of them to be in this group that is predominantly black, where at least you know, a lot of the peer group is black, you know, that's the principle trying to impose some kind of ideology on her that she, who's an educator herself, just, just felt was wrong-headed. And you say that you were shocked by this, but um, you shouldn't be, really, because in private schools around America, this has become something of the norm. I mean, you talk about a private school in Rhode Island, Gordon, you talk about a school on the Upper East Side of uh, New York, uh, Dalton, uh, priv- places of privilege, traditionally white privilege, I suppose, that have lent very heavily into dividing children into affinity groups and as young as kindergartners are being divided up by race to help conceptualise themselves about the history of racial struggle and the comity of racial unity within racial groups but not between them in the United States. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, uh, you know, there's many more restrictions in the United States on the extent to which public schools can engage in those kinds of explicit forms of, uh, you know, racial separation. Um, and a lot of public schools are doing it anyway. There's, uh, uh, you know, uh, race-based affinity groups at many high schools now um, that are public high schools. But private schools have considerably more leeway in doing this, and it's becoming uh, quite common. Um, so a lot of the most prestigious schools in the country, really the schools that are most likely to um, educate the future elite, the, the, the kind of schools that presidents of the United States send their kids to, or that uh, you know, very rich people in, in Manhattan send their kids to, all have this very explicit attempt to uh, affirm racial identity, to make sure that, uh, you know, as, 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 as one uh, uh, quote on the website of uh, Ralph Dalton School says, um, uh, uh, you know, kids end up having the right kind of racial identity. Um, and, uh, you know, I believe in freedom of association. So, uh, you know, if we were talking here about 15, 16-year-olds saying, um, you know, I want to be part of a group that meets after school, um, that uh, emphasizes a certain form of cultural origin, or even a certain uh, politically salient ethnicity within the United States, um, I would have somewhat mixed feelings about that. But um, uh, but but that is one of the freedoms that uh, people should have. And by the time that you're 15 or 16 or 17, I think you have some amount of agency. And if you want to go and hang out with those people who are alike to you in some kind of salient characteristic, um, I, I understand why a free society should should allow for that. Um, and why schools should allow for that. What we're talking about here is eight-year-olds, seven-year-olds, six-year-olds, in which the teacher comes into the classroom and tells kids, hey, you are white, you go over there. You are Latino, you go over there. You are African-American, you go over there. And that is the, the set of people who are like you. That is the set of people with whom you should identify. 
Um, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it's not just, you know, if it was just education, then I suppose we'd be like be able to limit this conversation to why are silly rich schools doing silly rich, uh, playing silly rich games with each other. But you also point to public health during the pandemic as being an example of where it's not about freedom of association. It's actually about the allocation of scarce public health resources like the vaccines when they were first developed or like the antivirals when they were first developed. And there was this push that was successful in many parts of the United States to direct care rather than being triaged to the neediest, to direct it in a, in a, I suppose, a social engineering way to make sure that historically disadvantaged minorities were at the front of the line, even if the individual human beings were less at risk than other, for example, old white people who might need the antivirals more. Yeah, so I think to me the most shocking example of that was that in virtually every country around the world, when vaccines were being rolled out, uh, and unfortunately we only had a limited supply of them in in the first months, uh, who got priority? Uh, Mostly elderly people, Um, you know, medical workers to some extent and and so on, but, but mostly we were, you know, driven by the fact that older people were vastly more likely to die from COVID than younger people. Um, and the fact that it's quite easy to communicate to the public who's eligible when you have an age cutoff. Um, most countries basically said, look, when you're, if you're over 80, you're now eligible. If you're over 75, you're eligible a few months later. If you're over 70, you're eligible later. I mean, eventually, of course, everybody was eligible because we had enough vaccines in supply. Um, the key committee that advised the CDC on what to do in the United States said that is unacceptable because an overproportional number of old Americans are white. And therefore, even though, according to the CDC's own models, uh, deviating from prioritizing the elderly was going to result in thousands more people dying, the ethical approach was to prioritize the much broader and more amorphous group of essential workers. Now, there's a lot of things about that that were troubling to me. Um, uh, one of them was the cavalier acceptance that more people are going to die. Um, another was that it was really hard to actually uh, figure out who should count as an essential worker. And often we ended up with hugely over-inclusive categories. Um, where at one point I was eligible because um, I'm a university professor. And even though I wasn't teaching in person, that somehow made me an essential worker who should get uh, priority on the vaccine. And so often... Uh, you ended up in situations where too many people were eligible. And so there was this fight for um, appointments and who won that? People who were highly educated, who had resources, who could go out of a way in order to get vaccinated in remote places and so on and so forth. And finally, it was a failure even on the supposed grounds that inspired it, namely of equity. Um, Prioritizing uh, essential workers reduced the racial disparity in the composition of uh, which racial group got access to the vaccines, arguably. Um, But it also quite clearly and quite probably increased the number of members of ethnic minorities who died. Because if you're giving a vaccine to two uh, 25-year-old African-American Uber drivers rather than to a uh, 75-year-old African-American retiree, you're likely increasing the number of black people who will die. Right. And just a couple of other anecdotes before we get to the political philosophy of this, which is really the heart of uh, of your your book. Um, 
the uh, the city of San Francisco it has has a program to hand out fifteen hundred dollars to needy residents as long as they are what trans, I believe. They have to be trans identified. That's that's correct. And they can get fifteen hundred dollars. There was a similar one that you don't mention in your book, but that came up in Los Angeles, where the city of West Hollywood was providing funds and uh, benefits to people who identify as LGBTQI plus, which I, which tickled me a little bit because the umbrella to, that umbrella has become so large that if you wanted the money, you could basically just like, what are they going to do? Are they going to ask me to blow a guy? You know, like as long as I can identify as queer in some way, which just means I'm sort of an ally, then presumably I'm eligible. Well, you don't have to because, because, because queer in a certain sense but queer in a certain sense has become a political identity. Right. So one of the sort of change effects of American life today is that um, so many people now identify as LGBTIQ plus uh, that actually a majority of people who fall under that category are currently in heterosexual relationships. Wow. Now, obviously, you know, you might be bisexual and, um, you know, you might genuinely uh, 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 you know, be a member of a sexual minority and yet currently be in a heterosexual relationship. But it does tell you something about the sort of broadening of this category that, uh, you know, uh, anybody who identifies as not, uh, uh, you know, being fully straight or anybody who um, experiences any form of same-sex attraction or anybody who has had any kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, different kind of sexual experience in the past now identifies themselves as being part of that category, such that actually a majority of people who claim to be queer or, or gay or lesbian or, or LGBT in that kind of way, you know, are currently dating somebody um, uh, uh, of the opposite sex in a way that makes them part of a sort of traditional majority. I think it sort of tells you a little bit about the strangeness of some of the search for, for falling to these categories. It's a lot cooler than being straight. Yeah, sure. It's a lot cooler than being straight. Uh, and the last, the last anecdote that, that uh, um, I'll just flag is you talk about um, this very this extremely elite school on the Upper West Side, Bank Street School for Children, which is a kindergarten through eighth grade school, where the way that they articulate the racial, uh, the segreg- racial segregation of their classes is quite instructive. They, they divide students into a kids of color affinity group and then an advocacy group, and the advocacy advocacy group is for all white children, and that in, that gives them instruction about raising their awareness of the prevalence of whiteness and of privilege, and encourages those students to own their European ancestry. I think that's useful because there'll be some cohort of people who are hearing this conversation thinking, well, here are a couple of white guys who are just upset that minorities are are getting uh, benefits that they've been denied for so long. That is not at all the core of your of what you're worried about. What you're worried about and what I found so refreshing about the book because it's also what I'm worried about is that opening the Pandora's box of encouraging white people to think about themselves as white, even if you're doing so in order to help them understand their own white privilege, is a dangerous game. The world has been torn apart by identity, identitarian tribal warfare in many places and many times throughout history. So I, I can detect in the pages of the book uh, a worry from you that we're playing a game that we don't quite know the consequences of and it may not end up going well for minorities. Is that fair? 
I mean, you, you, you've stolen my thunder there, Josh. I mean, look, um, you know, some people are very worried that when you have these affinity groups for various minority groups, you obviously have to have some kind of group for white people. And so, you know, one of the conservative worries, which I understand, is to say, uh, you know, are they going to be made to feel bad? Are they going to be made to, are they going to be shamed? Um, and I certainly don't think that shaming kids is a good pedagogical uh, strategy, but I sort of am a little bit less worried because I don't think most people are, uh, 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 you know, that vulnerable. And, you know, if you have to sit through some uncomfortable lessons, you know, so be it. Um, but I think that the assumption about what's going to happen in that group is really naive. And if there's one thing that we can learn from group psychology, and, and frankly, one thing that we can learn from human history is that, uh, you know, who you think of as a member of your own group is quite malleable. But once you think of somebody as a member of your group, and once you strongly identify with one group, you're going to be trying to uh, push towards the interests of this group, and you're going to become more willing to undermine the interests of those who you think of as outsiders, of those who you think of as members of other groups. And so, you know, the, the, the noble intention of Bank Street and so many other schools and institutions in the United States and other countries today is to say, we'll take these white kids, we'll tell them about white privilege, and we'll tell them about uh, their historical shame and all of those things. Um, and we'll tell them you have to identify as white in order to fight against those injustices. And that might work for a few of them, and a few of them might become great, committed, anti-racist activists. But a lot of them are going to say, you know what, if my primary identity is as white, then I'm going to be proud of being white. I and mean, I'm going to fight for the interests of white people. And given that by the way, white people retain quite a lot of power in the United States and in other countries, um, uh, they might be quite effective at doing that. And to, to think that this is somehow what's going to lead us towards a more just society that is more responsive to the real discrimination that persists against minority groups, to the real historical flaws that our societies have, I think is just deeply and thoroughly naive. And so, so you're right, but to me, a lot of why I decided to, to write this book, even though I might not make uh, uh, a lot of friends doing so, a lot of the reason why I, I want to write about this is that it just, I think, is going to make it harder to achieve a kind of society in which I want to live, in which I think most of us want to live. There's also only so much denigration that people will take. Uh, you know, so one one problem is turning up the volume on our sense of uh, a belonging to an identity group that's defined by its ethnicity or race. And the second problem is the climate in which it's only possible to really talk in negative terms about one group and positive terms about another. You can't really make general claims that straight white males are a force for good in the world at the moment in contemporary culture. If you do, then you're placed squarely on the conservative or far right end of the spectrum. You can't do so from a place of small L liberalism. And it does worry me that, you know, not to blame the victim, but as the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, you know, the Nazis didn't come from nowhere. There was a period in the interwar years where regular old white Germans were being told that they were responsible for the First World War and that they were the worst people in the world and that they were irredeemable and, you know, they were going to be have to pay reparations that were going to go down through the, the generations to the people who they'd wronged in the First World War. And that was not explicitly a racial or ethnic or religious thing, but they found their scapegoats and they got their uh, revenge in one way or another. And I look today at the rise of 
the right of the new right of Trump, of Le Pen, of Alternative for Deutschland in Germany. And <clears throat> you talk about the fact that people on the left seem very agitated about those right-wing forces, but they don't seem very curious about why they have the popularity they have. It's like, they, they, it's like we on the left think that those forces have just dropped from the sky somehow, that they're alien forces. But, of course, they're feeding off precisely this phenomenon that you're talking about, which gives sucker to them and becomes a self-reinforcing sort of feedback loop. How does that operate? Yeah, so there's, there's two points here. I mean, the first is just that sort of in ideological terms, you know, that Trump and the quote-unquote woke, right, the far-right populists and the left-wing identitarians are foes. And they're generally foes. They don't like each other. They have a different vision of life. They have different social customs and so on, right? Um, but I think in terms of the way in which our political system and our public sphere operate now, they're actually allies, which is to say that, you know, what I say in the book is one is the yin to the other's yang. Um, the, the, the election of Donald Trump tremendously helped uh, the people most obsessed with identity and who are pushing the most extreme ideas about identity to gain a foothold and then to come to control a lot of the mainstream institutions in the United States because it became really hard to criticize anybody on the left without being seen as somehow giving sucker to this generally scary um, uh, force on the right. And of course, one of the things that gives uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, emotional power to the sort of far-right political space, but that also makes a lot of people who are more moderate tempted to go and vote for the far right, especially in countries like the United States where you only have two choices, is the fact that we look at some of the left at the moment and say, you all have lost your bearings and you're embracing stuff that I find to be, you know, really quite noxious and, and wrongheaded. And so, I, I, you know, I'm going to look to somebody to protect me from this stuff. And so my political project is to argue for the basic institutions of liberal democracy, the basic institutions of our political system, to argue for our perfectibility, for our ability to make genuine progress uh, through reform rather than revolution, uh, for our ability to, 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 to make progress that I think is, is evident in the fact that our societies today are far from perfect, um, include a lot of genuine injustices, but are much better than there would have been 100 or 50 or even 25 years ago. And I think it's in making the case for an optimistic vision of a broad political middle, whether you're more on the left or more on the right, um, uh, that, that can actually resist uh, those kind of forces. I want to say something else um, that responds to your mention of, of your biography and of Germany. So, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish and I, I grew up in Germany. Um, and my concern is a little bit about what that kind of discourse might do to members of the majority. And it's interesting that in one kind of context, as you said earlier, you and I might just be seen as sort of, you know, straight white men. Um, Definitely not straight. Uh, uh, but in the context in which I grew up, I, oh, I'm so sorry <laughs> um, uh, to assume. Um, uh, but in another context, that's not how I was, uh, how I was raised, which is to say that in the, in the society in which I grew up, I was part of a victim group, Right. I was part of the sort of exotic victim of the Jews who were, you know, central to how Germans fought about their own identity and their own nation. And so I experienced some anti-Semitism, which was unpleasant. 
But I also experienced a lot of very, very well-meaning philo-Semitism of people who had never really met a Jew in real life, but who were so obsessed with the guilt of their country in the Holocaust that when they met me and when we realized I was Jewish, they needed to demonstrate to me that they were the good Germans and they were going to treat me in an especially nice way and they were going to be super careful about every word they said and perhaps they were super nervous in how they talked to me. And look, these were good people who were full of good intentions and I don't think they were evil. On the contrary, I think they were in some ways some of the best people in the society really trying to, to make the society better. But you know what? That made, did more to make me feel alienated and to make me feel patronized and to make me feel like I wasn't their equal than, than, than even some of the anti-Semites. If somebody's mm. anti-Semitic, you can say, you asshole, I don't feel inferior to you, fuck off, right? If somebody is, uh, you know, being super nice, but in a slightly creepy way, it's really hard to actually have a friendship with them. It's mm. really hard to actually feel like 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 you can be equals and so one of the things i worry about is that some of the kind of social and they know that they know that as well when they're doing it right i mean they you know they can feel it because they can feel the distance the moment they find out you're a jew a wall of othering slides down between you and they all of a sudden have to form this role of being oh my goodness i hope i don't tread on eggshells i mean we've all felt i think we've all felt this happen in the past five to eight years uh, in race and gayness and and everything else. I mean, it's the same with, uh, you know, I have the same experience with uh, being married to a guy and having children. If I'm at the par- if I'm at the playground mm. and my kids are playing and someone else makes a remark about my wife and I say, oh, well, it's actually my husband. You know, I feel like when I was living in New York five or six years ago, there was just a, an unruffled acceptance of, of that it wasn't exactly the same with kids but it was like it was like okay whatever, Wait, whatever. You, know, you get yeah. your groove on especially if you're in the east village or if you're in brooklyn it was like okay that's not a big deal i feel it more here in sydney because i think it's actually strangely more politically correct and more anxious about uh oh, because it's yeah. less diverse it's actually more you know all of a sudden it's like oh my goodness i'm so sorry i didn't mean to make any assumptions uh you know right, i just think right. it's wonderful isn't it fabulous then you know people think you can get married now and it's almost like they're saying you're you're, you're just almost just like a real person <laughs> you're behaving like a real person isn't it wonderful that we've let you be a real person and it's like <laughs> I'd rather less, you know, I'd rather there be less less fanfare about it, frankly. And I, right, I right. can't imagine that that experience is not also shared by a lot of minorities, especially if you're walking around with a skin colour that makes you a, an obvious minority in a way where I'm able to not be showing my minority status on wearing it on my sleeve all the time. If I was walking around black and everyone was constantly going, oh, my God, I didn't mean to say that thing about how I liked your hair because that could be misinterpreted because I know black people are self-conscious about their hair and, you know, I didn't want to ask where you're from. I actually meant whether you're from uh, Sydney or Melbourne or Perth, but actually it sounded like I was asking you whether you're from Uganda and, you know, fuck me. It'd be exhausting. Exhausting. And and sometimes it it, it 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 doesn't allow you to have the experiences you deserve. Um, uh, you know, I I I'm I'm a professor. I teach, and, and and mostly the kids are all right, but 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 they get very nervous on certain topics or certain contexts in a way that I think really impedes genuine conversation and sometimes pedagogical progress. And one example of that I had in the classroom is that I was teaching a uh, seminar on political writing in which the students had to actually produce uh, an op-ed, a speech, a kind of think tank report. And one of the, the black girls in the class, who was a really good student, um, produced a draft of 
an Oscar acceptance speech for the producer of Black Panther, um, which had a kind of social justice theme. Um, you know, nothing that she did in the classroom suggested that she was easily offended, that she would try to cancel her fellow students for disagreeing with her or anything like that. And part of the seminar, of course, was to offer constructive feedback, which we did in every piece of writing, right? It was to, to bring out what's strong in the, in, in the draft, but also to bring out what could be improved. These are students who are writing first drafts. Um, and on every other piece of writing, that worked really well. And on this piece of writing, nobody wanted to say a single critical word. And I ultimately got mad with my class. And look, this is a strong draft, right? But it has flaws. It has problems, just as like every other draft that we've read in the class. And this student deserves the same pedagogical experience mm. that everybody else got, mm. which is to have some of the weaknesses in her writing pointed out in a way that allows her to make progress. That's the point of a class. And, you know, you think you're being, you know, nice to her or somehow valuing her by, by just praising and just saying how wonderful it is. And it was a strong draft. But, 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 but that's actually shortchanging her, yeah. right? It is not giving her the a pedagogical experience that she deserves every, every bit as much as the other students in the class. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, I think it was Richard Dawkins who said vis-a-vis religion that uh, I, I respect you too much to pretend to respect your silly beliefs. And I sort of feel that way about, you know, I think there'd be, we'd do well to have a great, there's something patronizing and condescending at the moment about the white university educated elites attitude towards minorities. That's even more condescending, well, a lot more condescending than the attitude was when I was growing up, I feel, where uh, the, the, the light on the hill was egalitarianism and was equality and colorblindness and judging people on the content of their character, not the color of their, their skin. Um, and just to throw one more thing in, but hold that thought, because I can see you're, you're going to respond to that as well. Because you were saying earlier that you wanted to embolden the middle against the sort of Trump and the far left. And I, I think it's uh, one thing that you do in the book is you avoid talking too much about the middle. It's more about, and I, I, I am so grateful you make this point because it's a point I keep trying to make. It's not that the left has gone too far. You hear a lot mm. from conservatives, the left has gone too far. It's not, the problem is not that there are these good ideas, but if we just pulled back on the good ideas a little bit, then things would be better because you're being too good. It's actually a different philosophy. And this is something that you I want to get to your terminology here, the identity synthesis. This is a new way of thinking. It's a betrayal of Martin Luther King. It's a betrayal of the Barack Obama vision of a race-blind America. It's a betrayal of Gandhi. It's a betrayal of Nelson Mandela. And whenever I wonder whether I've strayed from the path and think, hang on, am I just a, cons- am I just a conservative? Am I just like a squishy, white, unconsciously racist person who, is, who has lost the plot? I think, hang on, what would, what would Reverend King say? What would Mandela do? And just do what they would do. And if the current left is doing something different, then they can play those games all they want. And those games are what you call the identity synthesis. So you don't have to talk about wokeness and so on. So take all of that where you will. Yeah, I, I worry about what I call not too farism. Uh, there's a kind of mode of criticism of, you know, quote unquote, the woke or what I would call the identity trap, um, which is to say, look, um, 
you know, they want the right things and they stand for the right goals and a lot of their ideas and proposals may even be sensible. But aren't they going a little bit too fast sometimes? Aren't they a little bit too radical? Aren't they a little bit too intolerant in the pursuit of the good? Um, and I think that that makes it very hard to understand what the problem is. I mean, you know, shouldn't we be zealous in the pursuit of justice? Shouldn't we be full of passion to remedy the injustices in our society? And sure, perhaps it's sometimes possible to go too far or to be tactically um, uh, uh, sort of not very shrewd, but but that doesn't seem like a serious failing. Why worry about that, right? But, but what I try to bring out is that actually the vision of a society that advocates of what I call the identity synthesis uh, have is fundamentally opposed to the kind of society in which I want to live. Um, you know, Derek Bell, one of the founders of critical race theory, perhaps the most important founder of critical race theory, didn't just argue that the actual process of desegregation in American schools uh, uh, ended up disadvantaging African Americans in some important ways and therefore was much more troubled than we might have hoped. He made some good observations about that. Some of that is true. He concluded that perhaps we should have actually uh, gone for separate but truly equal. Rather than integrating schools, perhaps we should have just bolstered the quality and the resources of black schools in such a way that we would have had you know, good black schools which were essentially segregated. That is, in my mind, the wrong consequence to draw from some of his smart and interesting observations. I'll give you another example. I have a chapter on cultural appropriation. And the plausibility of cultural appropriation is something we should worry about. comes from the fact that people apply the term to some things that are actually unjust or offensive, right? Clearly, it was unjust when in the 1950s and 1960s in the United States, black singers didn't have the same ability as white singers to have a career because certain record labels wouldn't sign them or certain concert halls went open to them. And when white singers then took their songs and had huge commercial hits and the black singer didn't get anything from that, that was clearly unjust. I don't think that what made that unjust was cultural appropriation. I think in the cases in which there's really something bad about cultural appropriation, we can name that in a more straightforward way. Theft of intellectual property in this kind of case. The kind of discrimination which didn't allow black singers to perform in their concert hall. That's a very clear, concrete injustice that undoubtedly persisted in the United States at that time. The intention to mock or to ridicule, which is often really what's at stake in those cases. But why is it important to be more specific about that? Because there's a lot of wonderful forms of mutual cultural influence. Because one of the best things about living in a diverse city like Sydney or New York City or Paris is the fact that we influence each other, that we learn from each other, that we rub off on each other. In fact, nearly all of the greatest artifacts uh, in, 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 in our human cultural repertoire have multiple cultural origins. And so when we misidentify what makes those particular cases of cultural appropriation bad, when we put any form of mutual cultural influence under a general pole of suspicion, we misdescribe the kind of society which we want. I don't want to live in a society with four or five cultures that are hermetically sealed off to each other. I want to live in a vibrant society in which there's a persistence of certain cultural traditions, but also there's a culture that is shaped by the clash and the and the influence of and the mixing of all of these different kinds of cultures, because that's what often has been greatest in, 
in human history. So that's one example of where mm. you know, the point is not mm. not a fireism. The point is, you know, with all respect for the sophisticated and interesting thinkers that made up a lot of the sort of academic origins of the identity synthesis, the vision of the world that they stand for is fundamentally different from the vision that I stand for and that I think most people in, in the United States, in Australia, in Europe today rightly stand for. Pardon the interruption. I just want to tell you about a video uh, that I want you to check out. It features the one and only Chuck Norris. You remember Chuck Norris? The man's in his 80s. And, uh, you know, I'm no spring chicken. Nonetheless, I care about my health. I want to live a long time. I want to, uh, want to be healthy. I don't always get as many fruits and vegetables and herbs that are supposed to increase my energy levels in my own diet. So I saw this video that Chuck Norris has made. He's kicking butt. He's uh, working out. He's staying active. He has heaps of energy left over for his grandkids and so on. And he says that he, he is achieving all this by making one single change. And he feels like he's in his 50s. Go to mymorningkick.com slash josh and watch Chuck Norris's video right now. That's mymorningkick.com slash josh, M-Y-M-O-R-N-I-N-G-K-I-C-K.com slash josh. And it's also interesting to note, Yasha, that the modern right wing also doesn't stand for those things. So, you know, the conception of protecting one's culture, protecting one's turf from an intrusion by other cultures, from other other cultures and other races pilfering what your own heritage. You could you could be talking to a neo-Nazi about the, you know, the the values of western civilization and how poor, ignorant races who weren't capable of coming up with uh, Western civilization for themselves are coming in and contaminating our societies. Uh, that would be a fallacious and monstrous point of view, but it's not actually that far in terms of its analysis of how the bumping into each other of the melting pot works from the point of view of these school of these schools that are segregating children on the basis of race. I mean, Donald Trump wants to build a wall to keep out... You know the brown people who are coming illegally across the 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 border. They're not sending us their best people. They're sending us their rapists and so on. He says. I mean, there is that's not that that's not as far away from the identitarian left that wants to protect dreadlocks as something that only black people can have, as either of those points of view are from your point of view. Yeah, <laughs> which I mean, is the, a more egalitarian and universalist one. Well, I mean, I, I mean, certainly the the concern about cultural purity um, has historically been a right wing concern, right? The idea that you know, there's all of this scary social change in which uh, you know our culture is being influenced by these outside forces, or other cultures are copying elements of our culture, and this is all pernicious because there's a pure culture of our folk that we must protect. That is historically a right-wing thought. Um, and what we have today is not a kind of right-wing monoculturalism, but what I call a kind of uh, multiple monoculturalism, which is to say, um, you know, yes, diversity is great. We love the idea of having these five or six different cultural groups, but, but, but the culture of each of those groups must remain pure and unadulterated from the outside, and we must be really careful about the boundaries between those kinds of groups. Um, you know, that is meaningfully distinct from that right and forth and that, it, you know, it says one nation, multiple cultures rather than one nation, one culture. But the heart of a, of a worry about uh, 
impurity, about mutual influence, about the freedom that people have to experiment with, with, with art and with cuisine and with music is, is, is in my mind strikingly similar. Why synthesis? Why, do you, why did you settle on the word synthesis as a way of identifying this identitarian moment? Yeah, so first of all, look, I just, you know, I don't know if this term is going to take over the world. I think it probably won't. Um, but, but just for the sake of a book, I needed a term that clearly identifies what we're talking about. And the strange thing about this ideology, which has become so influential over the last decade, is that it doesn't dare to speak its name. Um, you know, any word that people settle on for it immediately becomes used by some polemicist to attack it and then gets treated as, well, that is just, uh, you know, a battle term that is meant to make us look uh, ridiculous and so on. The word woke was a term of self-description at first, right? It was um, members of uh, left-wing movements very concerned with racial and other forms of identity that uh, coined that as a positive term, right? You want to be woke, you want to be awakened to injustice, um, but it now has become a term where if you say, you know, I'm writing, writing a book about wokeness, you sound like an old man, you know, screaming at the clouds. Um, and so I needed, just for the sake of having a serious conversation, a term that was a little boring and neutral so we can actually understand where do these ideas come from? How do they become so powerful? Why do they go wrong when you actually think about what influence they have and what would be a better alternative? And that is the core of it project of a book. Now, why identity synthesis? Because I actually, in the first part of the book, really trace the roots of these ideas. You know, where do the ideas that came to be very influential in American, Australian, European universities by about 2010 come from? Now, one answer to this that's given by a lot of people is this is cultural Marxism. Uh, it's just taking Marxism, which is mostly about class, and it's plugging in culture instead um, but that explains what's going on. And I show, you know, I'm trained as an intellectual historian, and so I, I, I do straightforward intellectual history. Um, and I explain where these ideas actually come from. I read all the texts, um, and, and, and I find that really isn't cultural Marxism, that the starting point in many ways is Michel Foucault and the postmodern movement he inspires uh, in, in France that later becomes very influential in the United States, um, and for Foucault, the, the, the key starting point is the rejection of what he calls grand narratives, these grand structures, ideas about how the world works, which include liberalism, which is why this tradition has, from the first moment, been more opposed to liberalism than to the right in some key ways. But it also includes Marxism. Foucault thinks of Marxism as just another grand narrative that we need to leave behind. Um, but then his thought gets adapted by post-colonialists like Edward Said and uh, Gayatri Spivak, um, who really try to use the way in which Foucault criticizes uh, contemporary political discourses in a more political way, to a more political effect. The point is not just to criticize the world, Said says, it's to show how these discourses really favor one actor over another, and therefore by inverting it, we can actually give power to the underdog. Um, you know, Spivak... Um, really picks up on uh, uh, Foucault's critique of stable identity groups, uh, the idea that you know a lot of categories that we often invoke, including racial categories, including gender categories, don't really make much sense, don't have a lot of uh, philosophical coherence. And Spivak says, look, that is right at the philosophical level, but I want to speak for the subaltern in the world. I want to speak for 
oppress people in India and Algeria and other parts of the world. And to do that, we actually have to organize them and encourage their identity. You can see the roots of some of the beginning of a conversation about schools and the way that teachers now think that the goal is to encourage people to have those kind of identities. And so Spielberg argues for a form of strategic essentialism in which we sort of pretend that this essentialist account of identity is right for strategic purposes to organize people politically, say, yes, we are members of X group, and as members of X group, we're going to fight for our rights and our collective interests. Uh, then I, I turn to critical race theory and the way in which the deep pessimism of Derek Bell about the ability to make um, political progress uh, uh, becomes influential. His embrace of a new form of segregationism in which he says, as I was talking about earlier, that actually perhaps we should have gone for separate but truly equal, but the attempt to integrate is often a mistake. And then finally, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, who introduces the idea of intersectionality, the idea um, uh, uh, that, that, that we're deeply determined by this intersection of different identities. And perhaps, as some of her interpreters go on to think, therefore we can't really understand each other and we need to defer to each other in how we persecute, uh, prosecute political struggles. There's a very, very dense uh, you know, attempt to summarize a lot of interesting intellectual history. Um, but why synthesis? Because I think that today's social justice movements are a popularization, a vulgarization of these interesting, sophisticated, if sometimes wrong-headed ideas. And they really are a synthesis of these different traditions, postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory, and they give you a lot of what is so uh, 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 central to these movements today. They give you the skepticism of objective absolute truth that is derived from Foucault. They give you this way of saying, how do you do political battle? By criticizing discourses and trying to reframe public conversations in ways that give power to the oppressed. What do we do in terms of identity? We're not skeptical of these identities that have historically led to a lot of injustice. On the contrary, we try to encourage them in such a way that people who are uh, LGBTIQ or people who are black or people who are Latino, people who are um, Asian American, organize in order to fight for their rights. And so actually we should make people think that identity is the most important thing about them. Uh, how do we think about the world? We think that actually there's not really been any progress and that therefore we need to really reject the fundamental institutions of our society because they're never going to be able to, 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 to make us progress. The vision of a civil rights movement that we want to integrate is wrong. We're only going to make progress if how you're treated is explicitly based on the group of which you are a part. This is the synthesis of different intellectual influences that can actually help to explain discourse today from the newspaper to social media uh, to, to a lot of what you might hear in a, in, a, in a contemporary classroom. So how does it leak out of the lab, Yasha? I mean, all of that's fascinating as the intellectual underpinnings of all this. But, uh, you know, Foucault successfully managed to be a maligned and, uh, and fringe-dwelling figure of, uh, of mainstream philosophy um, uh, from uh, from the time of his death up until uh, a split second ago in cultural time, um, you write in the in the book about how this makes the transition uh, partly through people graduating from university and then then growing up into positions of power in institutions, but also powerfully because of social media as well. What's that dynamic? How does it get out? There's a really 
fascinating paper by, by Kimberly Crenshaw, one of the key figures in critical race theory, which she writes on the 30th anniversary of CRT in the early 2010s. And she says, look, you know, our movement is 30 years old. We've had all of this influence in universities, and, you know, now we have, like, nice positions in universities, and people listen to us to some extent, and that's all great. But you know what? We have zero influence on the public. And Barack Obama, who members of the tradition see very, very critically as being exactly the kind of race-blind liberal whom they hate, um, you know, is, you know has, has rejected our kind of ideas. And there's this moment where American society is hoping... Uh, 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 you know, to 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 have a kind of um, optimistic vision of of how we can reconcile our history under these uh, you know philosophically liberal egos, and so therefore you know we're never going to have an influence on the public. And of course, what's interesting is that ten years later, precisely Kimberly Crenshaw and her uh, strain of thought becomes in phenomenally influential and powerful. And so the second part of my book, after telling the intellectual history of this more academic side of this, of, of this ideology, asks, how does that happen? How do we go from Kimberly Crenshaw, rightly thinking around 2010, that her ideas are not very influential in the American public, how do we go 10 years later to a moment in which actually these ideas are fundamentally influential, which popularized, more simplistic versions of this ideology are dominating the New York Times bestseller list in which corporations and organizations are, are pledging their the fealty to a lot of these ideas. And I think there are sort of three main things that, that happen. The first is the rise of, of social media. And that is important in a number of ways. First of all, it encourages a tremendous amount of experimentation with identity. You know, when you are a teenager forming your identity in the 80s or 90s, you're sort of constrained by the size of your high school, which is to say that um, to have a viable identity, you have to have a couple of other people who share that identity. And so if it's a relatively small environment you're in, um, you know, it's just got to be four or 5% of a population that share this identity for it to really be meaningful in your context. You can't get it off the ground otherwise. Well, what happens with platforms like Tumblr is that you have a self-tagging mechanism that allows you to reach people who are really far flung. And so suddenly you can have an identity that only a few thousand people around the world share but that's enough to build a community, to find each other, to get deeper and deeper into it, to encourage your, each other to, 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 to adhere more and more by, by that form of identity. And then you need something to hold those different identity groups together. So for the first time, you get this kind of like um, uh, overarching ideology about identity and how you should think about it and how it should be respectful and deferential to it, to sort of hold together those different tribes on, on platforms like, like, like Tumblr. And then you start to get that in the written form. In places like Ford Catalog and um, uh, everydayfeminism.com and salon.com eventually. And, and some of that goes viral in part because on social media, you're connected to people who share an identity group. So, you know, in 2012 or 2013, when Vox.com is founded, most of its visitors still go to the website. And that means that the articles that they can publish have to appeal to a lot of average readers. Because otherwise you'll stop coming back to the website if most of your articles on there just aren't of interest to you. By 2015, 2016, most of the article traffic comes from social media. And that means that you can find nine out of 10 of the articles to be super boring because they're not relevant to you. But if one out of the 10 of them really resonates and you share it within those identity-based social networks, it's going to go super viral and there's going to be lots of readers. 
And so that really shifts what kind of articles even new mainstream-ish publications like Vox publish. And when they become phenomenally successful and have lots of young writers who thrive in this way, they get scooped up by the Washington Post and the New York Times. And within a few years, this goes from you know, Ford Catalog to everydayfeminism.com to Vox to the pages of the, mm. of the New York Times. And as this happens, I mean, part of the one of the other liabilities is that the people who are more aligned with the way that you look at the world get sloughed off from those institutions because it becomes unbearable. So Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein and Barry Weiss, you know, and Andrew Sullivan, these are all very different people with very different worldviews, but what they share in common is that they had no truck with uh, an increasingly uh, rigid worldview at the institutions that they were that they were employed at. And so then those voices are no longer in those those outlets at all. That's correct. And that's connected to, to, to a second mechanism I talk about, which is a short march for the institutions. So another thing that happens is that, uh, you know, by 2010, you go to an elite university in the United States and you will encounter the ideas of the identity synthesis in a lot of classrooms, uh, no matter what your major is. Um, uh, because of distribution requirements and other things. And you will also encounter it very, very strongly in the trainings of the increasingly powerful class of bureaucrats on campus. And so then you go out into the work world, and especially in industries that lean very young, that have to compete a lot to recruit uh, smart young people, and that have some self-conception of uh, being do-gooders, as serving good, uh, good causes, um, it becomes very hard for institutions to resist the call to uh, go along with that ideology. So that's particularly true in tech. It's particularly true in the non-for-profit sector. It's particularly true in any form of uh, left-leaning media. And uh, so, you know, you have people who are true believers in this ideology enter the institution uh, and in part because they can shame people on social media, so there's a feedback loop of the other stuff we've talked about, they become very powerful very quickly. And quickly, if you truly offend the sensibilities of some of these young staffers, your position becomes untenable, even if you're much more senior, even if you're much more recognizable. And you know, that starts to get mm. to some of the uh, you know, stories of cancellation and people being pushed out that you know, we've seen play out again and again in the last years. And then perhaps just very quickly a third element, and then you really have a transformation, is then Trump gets elected. And what happens is that usually humans are actually quite tolerant of in-group dissenters. In general, they actually uh, understand that, you know, if you're historically of the left um, and you have, uh, you know, a little bit of chops to show that, and you're saying, hey, I'm not, you know, on the other side, uh, I just worry about some of the logical changes on our own side, and I think that this might be counterproductive and perhaps not setting up the kind of world we want. People actually might be open to listening. Unless, and there's really strong social science research on this, unless there's a condition of threat, unless you feel like our group is under attack. And under those circumstances, uh, this tolerance towards in-group dissenters actually turns into special hostility. They're often then seen more negatively than even an out-group critic, because suddenly you're a traitor. Uh so the line just dropped out and we've had to reconnect, but I know that we also share a lot of thoughts about free speech. Um, talk to me. <laughs> Why is free speech important? What is free speech? 
Yeah, so, you know, the, the sort of traditional arguments about um, free speech, which uh, I think are really interesting and important, right? So when you reach on Stuart Mills on Liberty, he tells you about all the great things that you get from having free speech. Uh, you know, he emphasizes that uh, it's important in the pursuit of truth, that for many millennia, uh, you know, some of the most important voices that uh, allowed discoveries for humans were shut up. And some of the points may have gotten lost. Um, he says that actually, even if somebody's arguing for something that turns out to be false, it's important to let them speak because we won't know our own ideas, our own case properly if we don't have anybody speaking against them. And I think those are all right and good. But too much of the case for free speech at a moment when it's really threatened. Can I just push back on that for one second from the perspective of the the new way of thinking about things in the sense that so that that John Stuart Mill position is under seems quaint and a little bit trite and maybe twee to people on the progressive, I guess, uh, identity synthesis left at the moment. In the sense that what I hear is there are certain truths that we can just all agree on don't need to be in the public square. Kill all the Jews is is not something is not a point of view that needs that actually needs airing. Uh there there is no sophist- there is no the chances of that being an insightful position that needs to be interrogated are so low that there is no great harm in ruling it out. Similarly, you know, uh, trans people are depraved and confused and uh, should not be allowed to access medical care under any circumstances. Uh, you know, we can just rule that out. And that in every era we have taboos that we rule out of the public square and there is a sort of marching vanguard of new norms that redefine the rules. And at every point in time, there are middle-aged uh, white guys waving their fists in the air and railing at kids these days who, uh, who want to do all these crazy things, uh, like uh, ban them from slapping women on the butts in the workplace and ban them from using the N-word. But we just change the rules about what's okay and what's not okay, and we have new contours for the conversation. And as long as you, you don't get too carried away, all you have to do is say, this is what hate speech is. We don't condone hate speech, and therefore these ideas are ruled out. And So what's your response to that? I mean, are you okay with that, or is there a John Stuart Millian response to that? No, no, that's exactly why I think that the John Stuart Mill case, which I think is important, I agree with, is not enough. Because it's not enough to respond to those kinds of critiques. And that's why I actually focus, in my case for free speech, not on the great things that we get out of having free speech, which I think are real. I focus on the terrible things that happen if you don't have free speech. And so my main answer to the progressive left on the kind of free speech is that they've sort of suffered in this kind of strange delusion where, you know, a lot of the advocacy of safe spaces, of limits on free speech, of speech codes, started on these highly progressive college campuses. And that's important because the left rightly assumed that in those spaces, they hold the power. They would get to decide what is sayable and what is not sayable, what is allowed and what is not allowed. But when you actually take that out into the broader political context, two countries like the United States, it's not always going to be the sort of good, bleeding heart liberal or even the sort of, you know, uh, far left identitarian who makes decisions. A lot of the time it's going to people, uh, far right populists and others, who actually mean a lot of ill for those groups. And so historically, the reason why the left has actually been an advocate of free speech is because of its recognition that by definition, the people making decisions about this are the powerful. Who gets to censor? The person who's in a position of power. 
And who needs free speech? The abolitionist, the member of the civil rights movement, the spokesperson for marginalized groups that actually speaks on the behalf of the people who generally don't hold power in society. So that's the first terrible thing that happens when you don't have free speech. It actually marginalizes people who don't have power. And then the second point is that it really raises the stakes of political competition, right? I'm very worried, I've been worried for a decade about the threat that populists pose to democracies around the world. And one of the things that I've observed is that when the polarization is so bad and your fear of what it means to be out of office is so bad, that the stakes of elections become intolerably high, the incentive to disobey outcomes of elections grows and grows and grows until the system breaks down. And what's one of the things that free speech allows is to say, you might lose this election, that might be painful, but you can mitigate, militate for your cause and you can get reelected at the next election. Once you fear that, once you're out of power, you also are not going to be able to say the things that you believe or to argue for, for the things you're passionate about, it becomes even more tempting to say, I'm going to break with the rules of a democratic game because losing power is intolerable. So these are just two of the bad things that happen if you don't have free speech. And so I think we need a sort of more hard-nosed defense of free speech, which isn't just about the good things we get from having it. It's about those bad things that happen when we give up on it. Mm, interesting. You finish the book by talking about the way out of the identity trap. You talk about three possible futures for the identity trap. What are they? Yeah. So, you know, there's a debate right now about, uh, you know, is the identity trap basically uh, victorious? Um, is it too late to really resist it? Is it clear that it has taken control of mainstream institutions to such an extent that this is just going to be the ideology of mainstream institutions uh, in the West? for the next decades. Um, you know, there's a second set of arguments which either claims that it never really had power or says that, you know, we're seeing first indications of pushback against it in certain institutions. You know, the New York Times opinion page is sort of a little more sensible than it used to be a few years ago. We saw after an attempted silencing and cancelling of a, a judge at Stanford Law School that the dean of Stanford Law School wrote a very thoughtful, considered 10-page memo uh, to the community explaining her stance on free speech, which defended the importance of academic freedom and criticized those events. So perhaps actually this is already over and the moment is past. I think that we're likely somewhere in the middle. So uh, some of the most extreme uh, forms of a popularized form of the identity synthesis uh, are experiencing pushback. You know, it used to be that when somebody quite unsophisticated like Ibram X. Kendi uh, tweeted uh, uh, unfounded statements, everybody would applaud. And now, you know, he often gets real pushback. Um, uh, we see that some of the most extreme institutional practices are being rolled back a little bit. And that's a good sign. But at the same time, we're also seeing uh, that the bottom line assumptions of a lot of our society are just steeped in the identity synthesis. Uh, a lot of the students I teach are thoughtful, smart people. And once you start having conversations with them and debating with them, they're very, very open to thinking about the world in an open-minded way. But the basic assumptions they have is that cultural appropriation is under all circumstances suspect, that there's something really worrying about intercultural communication, that we really can't understand members of our other identity groups in a genuine way, that uh, you know, we need to make sure that certain kinds of offensive speech are banished from society and people are punished for it. Those are bottom line assumptions that a lot of members of the future ruling elite of our countries now have. And so I actually think that this is going to be a really long fight 
um, we're going to be debating the extent of influence of the identity synthesis for the next 20 or 30 years. It's going to be one of the big intellectual battles of the beginning of the 21st century. And that's why I wrote this book. That's why I think that it's so important to actually understand these ideas properly, to consider them seriously, and to mount you know, not the best barbs about them on Twitter, not the best outrage stories about sort of the silliest ways in which they've been implemented, but, but the most serious, philosophically profound, uh, persuasive arguments against it, because this is a fight that we're going to be in for a long time. How persuasive are they, do you think, to the common person? I go back and forth about this. I mean, not just now, but over the arc of human history. I have a friend of mine, one of the smartest guys I know, works for one of the big newspapers in the United States. He's a an Oxbridge-educated British guy who's spent a lot of time in Berlin, uh, understands East Germany well, had East German grandparents, uh, has uh, has lived all over the world. And his attitude is basically, you know what? Liberalism has never been very popular. If you actually really get down to the bare bones and ask the average person whether or not they want to abide by Voltaire's supposedly apocryphal statement about, uh, you know, hating what you say but defending to the death your right to say it, they don't really want that. They want to live around people who kind of think like them and behave like them, and they are quite comfortable with a certain level of authoritarianism as long as it suits their prejudices. And we've had a brief window, either in the post-war period or since the Enlightenment, depending on how far you want to cast back the, the calendar, in which smaller liberals have been ascendant, and they have created the greatest opulence and the most sophisticated democratic uh, societies that the world has ever known. But there's no reason why that isn't just a blip in the longer-term history of humankind. Most of our lives have been tribal and hostile and authoritarian, and maybe our future is as well. What do you make of that depressing Point of view. Well, well, two thoughts about this. I mean, the first is that I do worry about the extent to which uh, humans have a tendency to be groupish, to you know form groups, favor the in-group over the out-group, um, and this has again and again led, especially diverse societies, into um, ruin, civil war, genocide, and things like like the Holocaust. And so that is a, a you know a perennial fight uh, that we're going to have to uh, wage. Um, uh, I think I'm a little bit more optimistic about the extent to which ordinary citizens today in Australia and the United Kingdom and Germany and in many other parts of the world, in, in Japan and Taiwan and other places, um, uh, are liberal. And that doesn't mean that they've read John Stuart Mill and are able to, to, to recite those principles. It doesn't even mean that they might not sometimes be tempted when somebody says, you know, really unpleasant, awful things. I'll just shut up. Let's, let's just get this person shut up, right? Um, but I do think that when uh, we adopt really illiberal customs, when we see people being punished in unfair ways, when they feel the dominance of a discourse that they uh, are strongly incentivized not to speak up against on pain of losing their job, uh, they, they, they feel really uncomfortable with that. They actually recognize forms of illiberalism um, and, and oppose them. And so I think what we need to do in order to win the discourse, as it were, is to have better, more sophisticated responses. One of the things I try to do in the book is to say, look, ultimately this, this tradition I've been talking about, uh, uh, which really is at its heart an attack on liberalism, you can boil it down to three basic propositions. The first of it is that you know, identity, especially race and gender and sexual orientation, is the fundamental prism for understanding the world. It, second, that a lot of the time, the sort of nice 
talk that liberals have about the principles of the United States Constitution or, um, you know, the, 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 the great ideas of equality, all men are born equal and so on. You know, that's just pulling wool over people's eyes because it's always hidden a lot of discrimination and so on. And that's always been its purpose, right? And then thirdly, we've not made any progress, right? As somebody like Derek Bell would say, things aren't any better today on race than they were 50 or 25 years ago. That is power because it contains the kernel of a truth. But what we need is a sophisticated response, which is able to recognize those injustices and formulate a much more realistic and, by the way, upbeat, ambitious response about the kind of society we want to build. So what I say in response is that, yes, of course, one of the prisms we need to understand the world is identity. Some of the important facts about the world are about things like race and uh, gender and sexual orientation. But that's not the only prism. We also need to think about economic class, about religion, about people's convictions, um, you cannot understand the world in a monocausal way. There's different kinds of forces going on. Secondly, that yes, of course, liberal societies have never fully lived up to the kind of aspirations they had. But we have actually made significant progress. The United States today is much better on race than it was 50 years ago. Australia today is much better on gender than it was 50 years ago. And so you know what? Instead of being cynical and giving up on the idea to live up to these ideals, we actually need to fight to live up to them and build these better societies. And that, in the end, is the best um, defense against the kind of tribalism that you talk about. Because when people have no hope mm. for the future, when they just feel that they're being cast as, as a bad guy or that society is always going to be fundamentally a, you know, a, a, a zero-sum battle between different identity groups, that is when they are tempted to go back into the kind of tribalism that has historically been most destructive of, of freedom, of prosperity, of peace, um, and of all the wonderful things we have today in our societies, of the ability to be friends with each other across different lines of identity, of, 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 of engaging with each other, of meeting new people, of living in a really vibrant, forward-looking society. And that brings us to the specific recommendations that you have about how to argue against the identity trap, which is how you basically end the book. The first of which is to claim the moral high ground. Can you talk us through how we should react to this moment? Yeah, look, um, I, I think a lot of what happens when people try to speak up against an ideology that in many spaces is quite dominant and it can feel scary to, to speak up against it is one of two things. Either they're so apologetic from the first moment, that they kind of look and feel guilty. You know, like, oh, I mean, I really hate to disagree, but, you know, I feel bad to say this, but isn't it true that, you know, and that immediately seeds from our high ground where, where, where you're impersonating somebody who seems to be shifty and nervous and have sort of bad intentions, right? You also waste a lot of people's time. It's the, it's what I call the throat clearing process of talking about anything. You know, if you're uh, if you're t if you're t talking about whether or not something that might be trite, uh, you know, like a let's suppose you think that there's limited utility in having what has become the norm in Australia, which is an acknowledgement of country before every Zoom meeting that you have with your colleagues. Uh, you know, a land acknowledgement about the traditional owners of the land. Uh, if you know, if, unless you are a First Nations person yourself, to question whether or not the script that people are reading is useful in improving the lives of 
disadvantaged First Nations Australians, you would have to precede that with 45 seconds of saying, look, as a non-First Nations Australian, uh, as a white person, you know, I know that, uh, you know, and as a man, obviously, and I'm speaking from a place of privilege, uh, but nonetheless, do you think that maybe when we conduct these meetings, we could X, Y, Z? There's a lot, there's a huge, (laughs) there's just an attentional and cultural and time cost in broaching any subject because of the caveats that you need to put on up front. And I, I agree with you, I think, that a, a more robust and frank and bullshit-free diving into the actual meat of the conversation would probably be bracing and useful for everybody. Right, and, and, and you can never, you know, the, the attempt is always to show your bona fides, but nothing, it'll always ring forth and nothing you do is going to have to, you know, of course I care deeply about, you know, you always feel nervous and shifty and it just puts you on the wrong point. Now what I also don't think works, which I also see is a kind of abrasiveness, right? Like you're going to hate what I say anyway and so I'm just going to say this as a barb and, mm. you know, like, like I'm going to play the role of a jerk because I know you're going to, you know, try to cancel me whatever I say, right? And I think that's also starting off on the wrong foot. Look, I wrote this book, I, I'm talking about this to you because these are my most fundamental convictions and my, my most fundamental convictions about how to build a good and just and tolerant society in which we all, to the extent possible, can, can live up to, 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 to our potential um, and we can have meaningful lives. I might be wrong about that. I might be wrong on some of the things I said today. Perhaps somebody will, 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 will convince me otherwise and that's fine. But I have nothing to be ashamed of. I'm speaking from the bottom of my heart for the kind of society in which I want to live, in which I think a lot of us want to live. And so I think if you speak with, with, with that authenticity, and if you, know, you don't try to offend people needlessly, you don't try to be a jerk, you also don't you know, over-apologize, you simply have the self-confidence and the courage to say, these are my fundamental convictions, and that's why I'm raising my voice, that's why I'm speaking up about it. I think it, it, it just signals the right kind of attitude. Mm. And the other point that you make on that is that remember that you're always trying to appeal to the reasonable majority and that people who are currently against you, who are currently your adversaries, could be your allies tomorrow. So don't become a reactionary, as you say. Don't become a jerk. Speak in ways that are as unifying as possible and make common cause with as many people as you can. Yeah, and one of the things that's striking to me is that some of the most... um interesting critics of this tradition once believed in it deeply. Um, uh, Ibu Patel, a great um, Muslim community organizer in, in the United States who does a lot of interfaith work, describes quite beautifully how when he was at college, uh, so the early version of the identity synthesis, helped him understand his experience as the child of Indian immigrants um, you know, to the Midwest. And for a while, he really became obsessed with it. And and his sort of intellectual orientation became quite destructive, right? He looked around just saying, you know, this is bad and this is racist and this is sexist. And that's sort of the way in which he was oriented. And then a couple of key experiences um, made him realize, I don't want to be that person. I actually want to build stuff. And slowly he grew to be more critical of the tradition. Now, today, I think he's one of the most convincing people who have genuine concern about social justice, um, you know, a deep commitment to anti-racism, but somebody who's really, really uh, persuasive in saying, you know, these assumptions that we can't understand each other, uh, but there's no progress to be made, um, that we have to be worried about mutual influence. You know, those are a mistake. We actually need a more optimistic a more forward-looking way of understanding ourselves. Um, and so, yeah, the fact that somebody doesn't agree with you today doesn't mean that they might not become one of your most valued allies tomorrow. And as you're saying, 
most people are on the sensible side here. Um, you know, this is a broader point. Um, you know, there's so many people right now trying to defend democracy who seem to think that the majority of citizens are terrible human beings. And I think it's very hard to be a Democrat if you believe that. I am a deep down Democrat and I worry about the state of democracy, but I believe that, that most people are, are, are decent. And sometimes we vote for people I deeply dislike or they hold positions with which I deeply disagree. But you know what? Um, they are responsive to, to moral arguments and, 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 and they largely share values that are recognizable um, to, 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 to all of us. Um, and, and I think that's true in this topic mm -hmm. as well. The number of people who are really just like deep ideologues in this kind of way is small. They're very influential at the moment because there's a conspiracy of silence and people don't feel comfortable arguing back against it, pushing back against it in the professional milieu. But ultimately, ultimately the number of people who really believe this is quite small. And if you speak up respectfully, but without apology, in a self-confident way, knowing that you're arguing for what you believe to be right, for what you believe to be just, um, you're going to be just fine, and together we're going to beat this. Yasha, it's terrific to talk to you again. The new book is called The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Thanks so much for telling us about it. Thank you so much, Josh.